about today with Arvin. Uh, today on the show, I am very, very excited to have uh, such a very special guest, uh, someone who has, uh, you know, been a strong and bold leader in Ontario for many, many years. Uh, I am so honored to say that we have on the show, the Honorable Andrea Horvath, the leader of the Ontario NDP. Andrea, thank you so much for joining the show. Hey, my pleasure, Arvin. Thanks for the uh, invitation. Thank you. Yeah, for sure. Um, so Andrea, first of all, how are you doing yourself? I'm doing okay, uh, you know, thank goodness, um, no COVID exposure, um, you know, and I, I'm lucky, much more lucky than many Ontarians. I have a, you know, a, a support network. I still have, you know, my, my job, if you will. And so I do every day recognize and acknowledge and be thoughtful about, you know, the privileged place that I'm in uh, compared to what so many other people are grappling with. I mean, you know, everything from the tragedies that people are, are dealing with in, in terms of loss of, of life of loved ones, but also, you know, small businesses and not only economically, but there's a grieving process there too, as you know, uh, when uh, small businesses have to close and students, uh, particularly post-secondary and such a, a flux. And I mean, it's just been, it's been really tough on people. So thank you for asking. Um, and I'm, I'm doing fine. How about yourself? I'm, I'm, you know, trying to stay sane. I've been, uh, you know, just at home for the past three months, not really going outside. So, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's what it is. And, you know, it is a difficult time. And, uh, you know, I, I know with all that's been going on in Ontario, we, you know, we see you doing fantastic work holding the Ford government to account, um, you know, especially during this pandemic. But, you know, I think it's really important for young people to sort of hear your fascinating story about your fascinating career, uh, because it is very inspiring and motivating to so many, you know, young people who are interested in politics and, you know, social change in their communities. So uh, in general, I just, you know, reading up about you, I I wanted to ask about, you know, your early life and um, sort of your finding interest in social studies and politics. I mean, you know, growing up, what was sort of your first impactful experience with, you know, politics and uh, social sciences? Well, um, you know, I, I, I actually think probably the most impactful situation that I faced as a young person happened even before university. My dad was an auto worker. I lived in Steeltown, Hamilton, but <laughs> my dad was an auto worker. <laughs> um, and I can remember in the 70s when, um, when he went on strike. And that was the first time, you know, I had to even... I had to even face the the issues around workers, workers' rights, um, you know, what unions were and all those pieces. And and so I think that was a part of it, uh, kind of getting a sense of where myself and my family were, uh, you know, in the kind of uh, in the food chain, if you will, uh, knowing that we were a working class family, but also that it, when that when it comes to that, how privileged we were and to have a, a, you know, a good working, a, a good, uh, you know, job for a, a unionized workplace and what that brought. Um, but then really the next kind of piece would have been uh, probably in, um, in university. I mean, certainly in high school, I was always for the underdog and, um, you know, I can remember defending my younger brothers in the schoolyard and things like that. And I don't talk about this a lot, but I started in commerce and then I just couldn't hack the, um, the lack of um, acknowledgement of the one input cost, which was labeled labor. Um, and it was just seen as another input cost as opposed to real people. And I think that was part of a turning point for me. I switched to labor studies and, um, and, and did a lot of work on labor studies and women's issues and graduated university into, um, into working with the local labor movement 
uh, and employers to help uh, mostly um, immigrant workers learn uh, English to help them transition because Hamilton was transitioning out of uh, the industrial economy uh, and we were had we had hit a recession and so there was there was a lot of work to do to try to give people some of the skills they needed uh, to be able to just survive and, and to uh, you know because when they when they get hired in the in the steel plants back in the day you just you just show up at the gate the plant gate and you're hired no resumes no kind of job interviews nothing like that so that was my kind of that first work that I did that really I mean I think it was for me a real a realization that I had to be you know working with people and for people uh, that's where my passion comes from and and so you know I've just worked from there. That's so fascinating. I mean, I, I didn't know that's, that's so interesting that first of all, you saw, you know, within your family, how, uh, you know, social change can impact people's families. And then in university, that's so interesting that, you know, you sort of discovered your interests and how you can sort of make a change in the community by with what you're studying, right? So that, that's, that's so fascinating. That's so awesome. Uh, so during that time, you know, you're so involved with the community in Hamilton and, and just in, in, you know, the South Ontario area and helping out people and workers. Um, so what sort of, I guess, because uh, you were so involved with community change and I guess like, um, you know, organizing and social organizing and that stuff, what sort of like, I guess, motivated you to want to jump into politics and sort of use, you know, the political institutions to make some change? No, that's a really great question, Arvin. And, and what um, what what ended up happening was absolutely that um, I, I went on to work in social housing for a while, and then at a community legal clinic. And a lot of our work was around um, law reform. So I was, you know, I was uh, working with tenants, advocating with tenants for changes in landlord tenant legislation. For example, I was working on environmental issues because it was Hamilton, uh, working on women's issues, working with people with disabilities, um, all about kind of working with people to identify how things could be better for them and then pushing the folks that had decision-making power to make those changes uh, actually start considering, uh, you know, considering these people and, and their needs. And so what ended up happening was I got tired of knocking on the door from the outside and I wanted to sit at the decision-making tables on the inside to actually try to push that change to, uh, from the other side of the table. And, uh, and that's why I, I ran for uh, public office in uh, Hamilton City Council in, uh, in 1997, which is a long time ago now, but uh, 1997 is when I, I made the switch, if you will. And it wasn't, you know, it, it, we were in a situation in Ontario where the government had changed. Uh, the conservative government had been elected and they were making things worse and not better for tenants and for environmental protections and for um, a, a lot of these pieces. And so, um, I saw the watering down of, of some of the provincial policy areas that really made a difference for, for people. And, and that's why, and, and they were downloading those kinds of decisions to the municipal level. So affordable housing got downloaded and land ambulance got downloaded and social services got downloaded. And so I thought, well, gee, now those decisions are coming to a council table where a lot of the council members and no disrespect, but they, they were used to roads and bridges and water systems and parks and libraries, which are all really important. Uh, but I really thought we needed to have people at the council table that had some experience on social policy issues. And so um, a bunch of my, uh, my, my kind of social activist friends and I drew straws and I got the short straw. And so they all got behind me and I got elected to city council in Hamilton. 
Wow, that's really awesome. Holy, that's that's something. That's quite the story because, you know, you were this, I guess, like a very vocal young voice. And um, I can bet, you know, at the time there weren't, you know, as many, you know, sort of younger people. It was mostly just people who had uh, had a career before, I guess. And you were just like, no, it's 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 about time we have some younger voices uh, trying to make some change in the community. And so, you know, with that time in city council and then uh, eventually running for provincial politics, what were some of those experiences like, you know, uh, I guess, um, you know, on the municipal level, the work you were doing and then sort of making that leap into provincial politics? Well, I mean, as you can imagine, in the in the '90s, um, it was it was interesting. You're absolutely right to identify there were very few young people uh, engaged at the municipal level or in any order of uh, government, and and very few women. Um, and the women that were involved uh, were women that, as you described, had finished their careers. Um, I had one uh, counselor tell me that you know. Um, give luck to you, dear. I waited until my children were all grown and out of the house before I decided to run for politics. So, so there was definitely some, you know, patronizing attitudes, and and it was tough. Uh, and I can remember, I mean, sitting in these meetings where literally the vast majority of people in the room um, were men, and they were men that were uh, older than me. And so it took a, a little bit to to actually jump into the the this, the dis discussions. But once I did, it was. It was, I think, really important to be there. And I think I really um, made some changes, not only for Hamilton, uh, but as a, as a kind of model for other, um, other jurisdictions, other cities and towns. And I can remember being often um, asked to come and speak at to women in politics conferences and those kinds of things. And, and you know, now today I'm the, the leader of the uh, official opposition in Ontario, and I have a caucus of 40 MPPs. 20 of them are women, many of them are young people, uh, and, and we represent the, you know, the cultural and racial and, uh, and um, uh, ethnic and religious diversity of our entire province. And then, I mean, it's, I'm really proud to be able to do that because you know, I did become the leader of the party over 10 years ago now, and that was one of the things that I was determined to do. And that was my camp, part of my campaign uh, is to open up the NDP uh, and, and, and make it younger and make it actually look like what we talk about in terms of our values. And so not only was that something that, um, I mean, nobody does those things alone. I mean, I had a lot of support and a lot of people on my team and, and a lot of folks that uh, helped to make that transformation happen, but it, but it happened and it wasn't easy, uh, but it happened. And I'm, I'm really proud of that because we have to have people who represent our communities making the decisions about those communities. Otherwise we get government that's very, very out of touch uh, with, the, with the people they represent. Definitely, for sure. And I mean, as you mentioned, like if we look at, you know, 2004, when you first got involved in provincial politics, and then we look today, it's it's like vastly different. And um, it, it's just very more, you know, as you said, very, very much more representative of our province. And, and as you said, many more, you know, women representatives, and, and the more, you know, women we have in politics, the better. Um, and, and so, you know, as you mentioned, this, this journey to where we are today, um, you know, during that time, uh, you know, because you were breaking many barriers and uh, sort of, I guess, uh, being setting an example for so many other people. Do you have any, like, I guess, memorable moments where you sort of look back and you're like, wow, you know, I, I really made such a big change in this field? Well, you know what? Um, I, I think there are. There are a couple of um, a couple of milestones, if you want to call them that. And I, I think 
you know, when you look at um, representation, particularly, uh, it would have been the 2000 and I guess 18, no, the 2014 election, when for the first time in Ontario, we had, uh, you know, um, was it 2014? Maybe it was 2000. Yeah, it was in 2014. Um, when we had the, for the very first time, 50% um, women in our caucus. I mean, that was a, that was a huge, uh, a huge accomplishment. There had never in the history of any jurisdiction in Canada been 50% uh, women uh, in the in the caucus or, you know, in the government. And it wasn't in the government because, you know, we were the opposition. We were the, the third party, actually. We weren't even official opposition at that time. But we had 20 MPPs uh, and 10 of them were women. And so going into 2018, just as a bit of an aside, I, you know, you always, you, you reach a milestone and, and then you don't want to slide backwards. So when we were preparing for the 2018 campaign, I said to my team, we have, I mean, we have, these things don't happen by accident. So the NDP has in place specific procedures and processes and accountability uh, around making sure that we are searching out candidates that, you know, that reflect the, you know, the values and beliefs that we have around representation. Um, and so we were successful in 2014, but 2018, as we're, you know, recruiting candidates, I said to the team, I know I don't want to go backwards. So we need to make sure that we have, you know, women candidates and that we have people that represent the communities that we're, we're trying to win seats in that, that reflect the people that they're representing. But so sure enough, 2018, again, 50% women in our caucus, so set for the second time. And uh, we, for the first time in the history of Ontario, we have a black caucus. Uh, we've had the, of course, with Jagmeet uh, back uh, in the day, we had the Jagmeet Singh, the first uh, turban wearing Sikh member of, of our caucus. Uh, so, so these things are extremely important. And, and, and they, uh, we had the first in, indigenous person, the first First Nations person uh, in the legislature uh, is a member of our caucus. And so what does this do? I mean, it creates um, a table where we make decisions based on the lived experiences, the, the, you, know, the, uh, the, you know, the realities of, of people that reflect who we are in community. And it, it's something I'm pretty proud of, I have to say. Definitely, for sure. I mean, that, as you said, the more people you have sitting around the table, the more voices being heard, it can only contribute to making a better Ontario. Um, so Andrew, I know you have to go in a couple minutes, but I just wanted to ask you, I mean, uh, you know, with all that's been going on in the past couple of years with uh, Premier Ford, you know, his unprofessionalism and, you know, he's just unfit to lead our province, frankly, uh, we've seen during this COVID-19 pandemic. But I guess sort of on a positive note to, because I know you've been holding the Ford government to account, making sure that they're, you know, at least doing the best they can uh, to uh, make sure Ontario is heading in the right direction, but still there's lots of room for improvement. So do you think that there's something, you know, as soon as possible that the Ford government needs to really pay attention to, to make sure Ontarians are, I guess, you know, safe and secure? And then also, you know, for yourself, I guess, is there something that you sort of foresee that Ontarians need to pay attention to or a certain you know, type of change that we need to make to make sure that Ontario is heading in the right direction in you know, this coming decade? I, I want to say that we're now in the, in the phase of trying to get the vaccines into people's arms. And I mean, you know, put aside some of the federal issues around access uh, and distribution to the provinces. But we're falling, we're falling behind when it comes to uh, when it comes to access to the vaccines and and, uh, and, and distribution of vaccines locally in in Ontario, uh, we found out that tomorrow uh, tomorrow 
uh, Quebec is going to start actually vaccinating people. Today, the, uh, the Alberta government went online and started making appointments to start vaccinating people. And from the Ford government, we heard today that, that they won't be able to even in, start implementing their plan until, until uh, 50, the 15th of March. So we still have to wait another two and a half weeks before the vaccine rollout is up and running uh, in Ontario. And so that's bad enough that we're at the back of the pack. But when you layer that on to the fact that they've opened up Ontario too fast, that they're refusing to put in place things like paid sick days, uh, things like lower classroom uh, sizes, um, you know, they're, they're just, they're not adding those extra, uh, uh, those extra pieces, the, the extra help that people need. Uh, they're, they're not helping small businesses get through. They're, I mean, they're, there's, there's just a lot that the government can be doing uh, to help us uh, to prevent a, a third wave from happening. But all the experts have said, without uh, you know a solid vaccine plan online, without these extra health measures, you know, without the government actually starting to spend some money and invest in these kinds of things, we're headed for a third wave, and that's terrifying. Um, so when it comes to the first part of your question, there are things that the government should and could be doing. The problem is Doug Ford just doesn't want to spend the money, and he didn't want to spend the money. Uh, to plan for the vaccines far enough in advance so that we wouldn't be, you know, um, in the situation we are, which is like really at the back of the pack of, of the provinces. And we're 10th of all the provinces and territories. When you look just at the provinces, we're seventh when it comes to vaccine rollout. But all the number of where we are isn't as important as the fact that that puts people's lives at risk. And it risks, uh, you know, the, the spread of COVID-19 even further, especially with the variants of concern. And it also, uh, it also risks a, a further lockdown. And so more small businesses closing, and especially if the government's not prepared to help financially for those businesses, it, you, know, more, you know, more schools and, and, uh, and colleges and universities in a, in a chaotic situation, um, more frontline healthcare workers burnt out, more hospitals not able to meet the demand, more surgeries and other procedures being canceled. You know, that's the problem. And so when, when, when we look to the future, though, just to finish off, Arvin, with your question, um, you know, it, it really has to, we, we really have an opportunity here uh, because we have to rebuild after COVID-19. And what, what we're saying as New Democrats is that we need to rebuild in a way uh, that, um, that reduces the inequities that we have in our, in our society. I mean, COVID-19, I think, really shone a spotlight on the, on the inequities that we knew already existed, on the things that government wasn't getting right from long-term care uh, to, uh, you know, to essential workers being exploited in, in terms of wages, benefits, and sick days and things like that. And so we have an opportunity now to say, if COVID showed us all of these cracks in our, you know, in the fabric of our society or the, the, the phrase in the fabric of our, uh, our support systems, we can't ignore that anymore. I mean, it's it's pretty stark. We need to deal with it, uh, and, and so we need to kind of rebuild in a way uh, that is is more equitable. Uh, we have to rebuild in, in a way that uh, everybody has a chance to build a great life uh, here in this province, because you know that's the dream of of every Ontarian, whether uh, whether you uh, have been living here for generations with your family, whether you've arrived in the last five years, in the last two weeks. That's the dream. And we can actually fulfill that dream, but it takes public policy initiatives and, uh, and a commitment to do so. So I think that's the vision for the future.
Well said. Yeah, 100% for sure. That, that is a wonderful way to end off on. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for coming on the show. I really, really appreciate it. And uh, this, this really means a lot. Thanks. Absolutely. My pleasure. Stay safe.